Corinthians, probably beginning at the fifth verse. The Apostle Paul in this whole chapter, his main idea was to present the way of giving, but he ends it in an entirely different manner. But the expedite time, the fifth verse, says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exalt the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof you had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, having all sufficiency and all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dis he has dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sowing, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of, experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed objection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men, and by their prayer for you which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Father, as we come before you again tonight, we realize we stand in your presence. We realize our failures, our inabilities. We realize, Father, that we are not worthy to stand here other than been made worthy by the blood of the Lamb and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we will do no despite to your word, that you would honor us as we speak, and might we be mindful that you alone should speak these words. Pray that you would anoint us, anoint our lips, anoint our voice, Give us strength, Father, and let us be obedient. You anoint also the ears, the eyes of individuals spiritually that they can see, their hearts that they can understand, their souls, that it might cry out for the word of God and hunger and thirst after it. Strengthen us, we pray, Father, and let your will be done in the remainder of this service, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. Certainly thankful for you being here tonight. One of the wonderful things about the Lord is it's good always to be in the house of the Lord. Always good. I hear people talking about this service and that service, but I've never really been in a bad service. There's always something about a service, any of them, regardless of how they are conducted, there's always something good about that service we want to get the good out of it. The Apostle Paul was addressing the Second Corinthians concerning their offerings that he was going to take other places, encouraging them. And he was giving great exhortation and dissertation on giving. And I was preparing not too long ago for a message on giving and what it takes to give and what God says about giving. And while I was doing that, I came to the last verse. 
the spirit I passed over it as I usually do because that's the end of the chapter and sometimes we don't pay as much attention as we ought to to the beginning verse and the ending verse because we feel like the meat of the thing is in the middle we do that with the chapters sometimes we don't pay any attention to the beginning of chapters or to the end of chapters but God says in his word just as much there and sometimes more than he says in the middle of it and I found that to be so as the Apostle Paul ended his speech dissertation admonishment whatever concerning giving and he ended it with thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift as I was about to pen some words concerning giving the Holy Spirit of God seemed to prick my heart and God said, go back and read that last verse again. And I read it again. And I have a Bible called the Emphasized Bible. It tells you from the original what uh, the writers put emphasis on. In their writings, they had ways of putting emphasis on what they really wanted the meat of that chapter or that verse or whatever it was to be. And in returning to that, I found that the emphasis of this whole chapter was placed upon the last verse, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And it seemed as if while the Apostle Paul was talking about giving monetarily and giving financially, which is a necessity, it seems like while he was talking about that, while God began to deal with him and the things that man could give, the things that they were expected to give seemed to pale in the sunlight of God's glorious power and beauty as he began to realize and compare what God had given to us. And he termed this gift an unspeakable gift. That word from the Greek is anekdaiditas, which simply means that which cannot be fully explored or that which cannot be discovered in its fullness. In other words, that gift that the Apostle Paul was talking about that God gave to the world that caused our giving and whatever we give of time or money or our life to pale in the sight of that, that gift was Jesus Christ. And there's no way that we can fully explore, fully discover, or fully know the fullness of that gift. In fact, I was acquainted with him a long time before I came to know him personally. I have found that the more I know about him, the more there is to know. I find it almost impossible to discover in his fullness the value of the gift of Jesus Christ. I thought when the Apostle Paul must have looked to heaven, and must have been admonishing these people he saw that what we was able to give was nothing compared to what God had already given us. And then I could see why he said, and it seemed like this part did not even belong to the chapter, talking about something entirely different than monetary giving. He was talking about a life that had been given for the sins of all humanity. He was talking about salvation that came, that it could have come no other way. He was talking about lives that were salvaged because I don't know which way to turn. God's gift 
that he gave to the world, and yet the majority of the world does not recognize it. As I was viewing that, the Spirit of the Lord began to move, and I began to ask him to help me understand, Lord, if it is possible at all, help me to understand the magnitude of that gift. Help me some way to get into your presence enough that I might at least acquaint myself a little bit with the magnitude of the gift that you supplied to a lost and dying world. And it is then, and I'm sure some of you have had times when the Spirit of the Lord just simply sets upon you and he begins to talk to you. He doesn't talk to you audibly, but he begins to speak to your heart. There seems to be a silent voice inside as you sitting there just listening. How many of you have ever asked God a question and then never given him a chance to answer it? I mean, you just keep talking to him, praying to him, and asking him, and you never give him a chance to answer. But I will guarantee you, you'll ask God for something and really want it, and then stand still a while, just sit still a while, God will begin to speak to that heart inside, and he'll begin to tell you some of the things that you desire to know. And I had to consider God's just demands to redeem Adam's race from the curse of sin. In other words, if I could understand the magnitude of all of God's unspeakable gift, I had to understand the just demands of God and what it was going to take to redeem Adam's race, which while I was a part of and knew from the curse of sin. God began to speak to me in three areas. It took a sinless life. Jesus had to live a sinless life. Tempted in all manner, even as we, and yet without sin, it had to be that way. Not only had he lived a sinless life, but he had to die an atoning death. Any blood would not do. Blood of bulls and goats was not enough. No man was able to furnish it, but he had to die an atoning death. To live was not enough. He had to die, and even that to die was not enough. He had to accomplish a victorious resurrection. So you have it there, a sinless life, an atoning death, and a victorious resurrection. And then it seemed as if after he spoke to them, he drew me a word picture that I would like in my weakness to portray to you tonight. He had me to stand at the cross as if maybe it wasn't there, and look back and some way view all of God's creation standing in judgment, not knowing anything about the unspeakable gift of God. All of Adam's race standing before God and judgment is here. And God says, there must be one among you that is sinless. Blood that has no taint of sin in it, lips that have never spoken any guile, one without blemish in any way. Sin could never have been a part of it. Example of that, of course, Exodus 12. Not only did it take the blood of the Lamb on the two sides of the post and the upper post of the door of the house to keep death from entering, but that Lamb had to be without blemish. And suppose God is standing there in the midst of humanity and saying, this is what it takes to redeem man from the curse of sin is there's such one among you. Notice now the Apostle Paul must have caught a glimpse of that when he finished that chapter with his power of God upon him when he simply closed his mind to everything else 
lifted his hands like in shame toward heaven and said, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Thanks be to God for remembering us, for knowing that we are frail and we have no way and there's no way we can accomplish. And God saw us dying in death. The Apostle Paul saw that. And so as we're standing there not knowing, not realizing that there has been one among us, we look at each other. At the best man that we know, lived the best life he knew how, and we knew it was not enough. We knew that someplace in his life he had sinned, someplace in his life his lips had spoken guile, someplace in his heart there had been some resentment, jealousy, or something like that, and we knew that there was not such a man. And yet, in man's darkest hour, when judgment was ready to be pronounced upon him, and we knew that we was worthy of death, or there was no redemption, out of the shadows of man's darkest moments steps a man called Jesus Christ. And that man stands between us and the righteous judgment of God and says, yes, there's one among you that walked in the flesh that was flesh, and I qualify. I qualify, no wonder John said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. No wonder when he looked and beheld him, he saw God's unspeakable gift unqualified. And Jesus steps forth out of there simply and says, I qualify for that position. I lived among men, walked among men. I was challenged, I was mocked, I was scoffed, and all of that, and not one time. Did my heart ever hold resentment, but my love moved out and fashioned itself and found itself in the heart of man. Not one time did I ever speak anything and no guile was ever found in my mouth. I lived pure and holy. I did it, he said, for a reason. Not for myself alone, but because Adam's race was lost and needed somebody that was able to rescue them. And Jesus, God's unspeakable gifts, and yes, I qualify and stands between us and God. First Peter 1.19 says we are saved by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Aren't you glad that he came? Aren't you glad that he robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us and satisfied the greatness of Almighty God? But to live a sinless life was not enough. Not only a sinless life, but one such man that has lived that life has to be willing to take the sins of all of Adam's race, lay it upon his shoulders, and suffer the penalty that God's justness requires when that's death. There is a divine decree, Hebrews says, that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of is there such a man? Will he be willing to give his life? He did nothing to deserve death. He did nothing that he should have to die for. But yet this man stands between us and says, I've never sinned. I'm the spotless sacrifice lamb. But yet he had to be willing. He wasn't programmed to do this. He had to be willing to say, yes, God, if you require sacrifice like that, I am willing to do it. And again, 
At a man's darkest moment steps a man covered with spittle, beaten and bruised by the sadistic hand of man, rivulets of blood from a crown of thorns dripping down there, and his back lacerated to ribbons by the cat of nine tails, almost half dead as he led him there. Man was not concerned about him. Even his closest ones was not concerned about him. But you need to listen to Isaiah as he cries it back in Isaiah 53 and 5 in about 712 B.C. where he says he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgression. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes he said we are healed. And this man stepped out in the shadows and says I will and gathers your sins and mine upon his body and mounts the cross of sin and shame. And against that divine decree in the most majestic language heaven and earth has ever heard ringing down through the corners of time and the halls of eternity comes the voice of God's unspeakable gift and says this is my blood of the new testament which was shed for the remission of all sins and I am willing to take humanity upon me and I am willing to die for him friend let me make it a little closer he said I'm willing to die for you yes 2,000 years later that blood still hallelujah that blood still flows as clean and as pure as it ever was he was willing to die the atoning death and he could do it and so they took him cruel hands seized him beat him to an inch of his life led him to a place called Golgotha. He had no business there. There's no reason that he should have been there. All he did was love. All he did was supply good things to humanity. But he was there not because of him. And I like that, and God spoke it to me personally and said he was there because of you. He saw you. Even before you was ever born, you thought of out. He saw you wallowing in sin and misery and knew you needed somebody. And he was the one that could do it. Friend, you need him tonight. I need him tonight. I cannot do it without him. And when it comes to death, I know I have no salvation outside of him. And sometimes it thrills my soul to see him geared, and yet it saddens my heart to realize that this is what he had to do. But they took him, beat him to the inch of his life, took him and hugged him on the cross. He had to die and atone death. There was no way he could escape it. He could have said, Ten thousand angels come, deliver me from here. But he had humanity in mind. Sometimes I look at that selflessness of Jesus. Sometimes I look at the way he lived his life. Sometimes I look at the aggravation that must have been his. Sometimes I look at the times when he could have very easily said, this is too much. But something challenged his life. I think that very same thing ought to challenge ours tonight. Somebody needed him. Somebody needed him. Friend, they need him tonight, but they also need you and I. To speak concerning him and to challenge individuals concerning him. That their lives might become dedicated to him. Because sometime down the road we're going to face death, friend, and we can't have life without him. 
someplace, somehow we're going to have to meet God. And if we haven't said yes, Jesus stood in my place. He stood between me and death. And that's the only way we can have salvation eternally. We may not feel like we need Him now. Sometimes the church has portrayed a pretty bad example of Jesus Christ. But friend, whatever the church has done to Him, don't blame Him for it. Get in your Bible and realize, as the Apostle Paul did when he looked up and said, Oh, all the giving I could give in my life. I could give my whole being, my whole place. I could give my fortunes, everything I've got. And it's nothing compared to the unspeakable gift of God that came down and interrupted the heart of man and salvaged his soul. Some way, somehow, we ought to deem it necessary to get a hold of God in His fullness. And some way in our busy rush of life, look up and say, God, I thank you for Jesus Christ who came and salvaged my life, who gave me what I needed in it. But he's hanging there now. He's uttered five cries. Remember now, it's just as necessary for him to die as it was for him to live a sinless life, as it was for him to die an atoning death, he has to die that atoning death. Now you watch him there sometime because this is the pivotal point of history. What would have happened there again? Not only had there been no Jesus Christ, but what would have happened if in the misery and the pain that racked his brain and his body in such a gory display of, uh, of crucifixion. The worst type of death, especially the Roman crucifixion, the worst type of death a man could face. And what would have happened if Jesus would have decided that it was too great a price to pay, that it was too great to pay, and knowing he had at his disposal 10,000 angels and would have called them to take him from the cross and humanity would have been lost. Imagine where we would stand tonight. Sinless life wasted. He would not have died an atoning death. He would not have accomplished that which God sent him to. But when he wasn't born, programmed to do it, he had to willingly do it. God gave him a mind to understand and a will to decide for himself. And that's the crucial point of it. That's the difference between the last man, Adam, and the first man, Adam. The last man, Adam, Jesus Christ, declared humanity good enough to salvage us and to die for us. And friend, every time I think about God's unspeakable gift, something grabs my soul. I realize my life has been lived too drab. I've been living too comfortable. I've not been mindful of what Jesus did and what he left for me to do. And he's hanging there on the cross. Suppose you didn't know that he died. Suppose you didn't have the book before him, before you. And you're standing there knowing that if he dies, he's accomplished an atoning death. And if his blood is shed, that sets you free. And then you stand there not knowing whether any man can take the physical torture that's going on in the mind of this man or his body. And you stand there and wait and he begins to cry. I have cries, he cried. 
I won't mention any of them, but you know what they are. And he's Christ, five of them. But the one that is going to lift the sentence from all humanity has not been uttered yet. That one we wait to listen for, and we wonder, will he cry? Will he actually do it? Will he call legions of angels? They threw in his face and said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. I've said this before, that was prophecy coming from the lips of an unregenerated man. And it was certainly true, had he saved himself, he could have saved nobody else, and he had the choice. But he deemed your life and mine more precious than silver or gold, and even more precious than his own life. And he hung there, suffering, brain about to explode, and you watch him now. As he raises himself from that sagging zigzag position typical of dying men on the cross. Fills his lungs with air. And with one last ounce of strength. Raises up and cries what needed to be cried. He says, it is finished. It is finished and gives up the ghost God's unspeakable gift. And if we could see him. If we could see him as that body breathed this last. If we could see that great omnipresent spirit that's there. Walks through the outer court. Walks behind the first veil. Past the labor of water. Past the candlesticks and the table of shoe bread. To the second veil. Some giant hands grabbed that veil that was so thick. That it took many oxen on each side to tear. And that great unseen hand rends that veil from top to bottom and a new and a living way was afforded God's people to come into God's presence. No more blood of bulls and goats. No more sacrifices of animals. No more high priests. Christ forever remaineth the high priest and we have access to the throne of God. Hallelujah. That access is still for us tonight. If we haven't availed ourselves, we need to over and over and over again. I plead with you tonight, saints, don't let Christ die for nothing as far as you are concerned. Some way let Him touch your heart. Some way let Him touch inside where you live. You see, what He done was signify by the rending of that veil that it wasn't needed anymore, but that wasn't all. He exposed the hypocrisy of the synagogue and the priesthood that day because they had always left on life that behind that veil is where God dwelt. That God dwelt only in the Ark of the Covenant. And when He ripped that veil from top to bottom, it exposed them there because the Ark of the Covenant had never been in that last temple. You never really know where it's at. You lose sight of it in Jeremiah. And you don't know where it's at until Revelations opens and said the Ark of the Covenant in heaven it's become Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So there's no wonder there wasn't any healing in that synagogue. There's no wonder there, there was hypocrisy of the priest on down in that synagogue because God had never been there. He had entered in a lot of times through Jesus Christ that they wouldn't have Him. They said, away with Him. We don't need Him. And they refused to bury God of heaven and refused to accept Him. And He tore that veil in twain 
and the eyes of all humanity could see behind that veil and they could see there was no Ark of the Covenant there there was no uh, nothing there that was so, so, supposed to be in it it had all been hypocrisy it had been saying God was there and he had never been there read it you'll find that in uh, the temple the glory of God filled the temple and people could not go in and in that temple that was built then you'll never find where the Ark of the Covenant was there. God had never entered into that. It had never been His. And He was He was exposing that to all of mankind. God's unspeakable gift. Lift your hands with me for a minute and say thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. Why did you die, Jesus? How could you have meant, how could we have meant so much to you? And so he's dead. This man, sinless life, 33 years and a half. Three years and a half he ministered. Three years and a half he touched lives. Three years and a half he accomplished miracles, cleansed lepers, opened blinded eyes, caused the lame to walk, even raised the dead. And now he's dead. He's dead now. And that's not enough. I think there's a scripture that you can go to the tomb now with me. And you remember, all his claims of being the Messiah was based upon being in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And then he would rise again. You see, he did not base his claims of being the Messiah on the miracles that he performed. He did not base his claims of being the Messiah upon the blinded eyes of the open. He did not base his claims upon being the Messiah, even of raising Lazarus from the dead. But the only claim he based it on was if I'm in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and raise again, that's sure proof that I am the Messiah. Matthew records him saying that, for if Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ be not risen, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins, regardless of the sinless life and the atoning death. If the devil could keep him in the ground, the victory would have been won. Nobody, nobody could have believed by his own words that he was what he claimed to be. There's no one that the world wanted to keep him. And there's no wonder that the world tried the best he possibly could to keep him there. You notice when they come that we would like to make sure that he stays there. This babbler said that he'd build this temple and destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. In other words, he said. In other words, he's not going to stay dead. We're going to see that he stays in that tomb. Because if we don't, his disciples are going to come, they're going to steal his body, and they're going to claim that he's rose again. And the last error is going to be worse than the first. And so we want to be sure that fake stays in there. Jesus didn't care. God didn't care. He was far above man, so he said, All right, you roll a stone. 
against that grave. He was in a boy's grave. And you roll a stone there. That's enough. And you put this Roman seal on there. And nobody will dare to break the Roman seal. And not only that, but you put a the soldiers is going to be there and we can't make it any sure than that and yet Jesus said I'm going to be there three days and three nights and I'm going to come out of there so you see who's going to have to win and it doesn't make any difference God wasn't afraid of the Roman seal he wasn't afraid of the soldiers was there he didn't care what was there and I'm a firm believer that exactly three days and three nights and I'm the presence Spirit of God walked into that tomb and picked up that body and walked out of there victorious over death, hell in the grave and brought to us what we need so desperately is life and life everlasting and says to humanity you're free now from the curse of sin and death you can live I said you can live and I'm glad I can live tonight through Jesus Christ our Lord hallelujah come out Glory to God, the angel says, He's not here. Whom she kissed. He's not here. He is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. The stone was already rolled away. But Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. He didn't have to have it rolled away. That body he came forth with. Same time that I'm going to have all these times. <laughs> you might call me crazy if you want to, but I, I believe I'm going to have a body. I'm not going to float around up there in a never-never land walking through mansions that I don't know anything about and walking on streets of gold. Maybe they're there, but that's not of interest to me. I don't care much about gold right now, and that's certainly not going to interest me much. What I'm interested in is getting in the presence of the one that salvaged my life and rescued me to look on his face and finally say, God, I'm glad for your unspeakable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pales in any giving that I could give. I could give myself, and it's not enough. It's all God asked for, but it's not enough. But you see, that body he came out with, he could just put it off. <laughs> you know, they recorded in the Bible the apostles or disciples were gathered together, and the doors were closed. And then all at once, here was Jesus. Hallelujah. Just put off that body and some way he was in the room. If he had just been the carpenter's son, he would have had to take him a hammer. And he would have had to knock those little things out of that door. Or he'd have had to learn how to pick a lock. He'd have been the carpenter's son and that's all he'd have been. He'd have had to find some way to get into that door. But he was more than that. He was the son of God. Hallelujah. The resurrection and the life. The thing that we need. That was the very thing that become of him when he rose. But that's not enough. He's alive. He's not here. Come and see the place where he lay. We went to Jerusalem one time. We looked in the place, and I suppose everything is right here. We looked in the tomb. I was so glad to you see it. That did me more good than anything I know of to know that it is. To know of a surety that he's not there. God wouldn't even allow him to stay there long enough for corruption to sink. You see, after four days, corruption, corruption sinks in the body. That's 
why it said Lazarus been dead four days, but now he's speaking. But you see, corruption had never set in on the body of Jesus. That's why it just left him through the Thank God, and he brought that body out. I don't know the resemblance between this body and that glorious body I'm going to have, but I do know one thing. God's going to take care of it all. I'm going to be, be able to do just exactly like Jesus. I won't need an airplane ticket, thank God. I won't need uh, whatever they do in these, uh, uh, when they go into outer space. I won't need those helmets, and I won't need pressurized uh, cabins and systems. All I'll need is a glorified body he's already said was mine, hallelujah, and be able to come to him and in his presence. But it's not over. It's not enough. Death. Owning death. Glorious resurrection. Jesus says, if I go not away, the comforter will not come. Have you ever heard people say, I'd like to be living in those days when Jesus walked the shores of God? I've said it myself. And then I come to realize, no, I mean, Because if I was living in those days and I was living I'd have to have money enough to get a thing to go over there where he was at in order to touch him. The Bible says he was the foolish of the Godhead box. Yes, he was. Foolish of the Godhead box. And as long as he remained in that body, that's the only way humanity could ever get a hold of God. There would have been no way that I could have ever done. But Jesus said, I'll come. I've got to go away. Hallelujah. And in the upper room, fearful of the Jews, obeying the last command of Jesus, out of the multitudes that thronged him during all of his out of the great followings that he had, five hundred followed him out. And he lifted up his arms and blessed them and ascended. Well, first, go to Jerusalem and tell me how to tell you be endued with power from on Out of that 500, 120, deemed his last days on this earth so necessary that they moved heaven and earth and not really knowing what they expected for how long they went to Jerusalem. And there, they locked themselves in. And there they begin to Jesus did not say how long he would have to live. He just said, in order to fulfill the job, I've got to leave. You've got to win. Because there's for you. And Jesus sees it so much that we be able to anytime we realized he could not stay in this bottom. But he was going to make it clear. Whenever we wanted to, we could touch the hem of his garment. Because he came into the heart of every believer and fulfilled himself in the power of the Holy Ghost. And here he dwells inside. And we have access. We can touch. 
I can touch him when I lay my head on my pillow at night. He's there. I don't have to go to Jerusalem. He's come to me. I can touch him when I wake up at night. Troubled, ha adverse conditions in my life. And I need somebody. I don't have to charter a plane and go to Jerusalem for his death. I reach out and I touch him and he's there. I wake up in the morning and things are not right. I need him. I touch him. He's there. Anytime during the day, I can touch him. He's there. He made himself a baby. One hundred and twenty. Fearful men and women with a commission given them that they knew they would be Out of blind trust in the last words of Jesus Christ, made their way into Jerusalem, found themselves in an upper. I don't know what they did about their daily life. Some of the 380 disciples that it really wasn't all that necessary. You see, we still got individuals that still feel that that it's really not necessary to go to the upper room. 380 heard him said that they decided it really wasn't all that necessary. Or perhaps I'll just wait a little while and then I'll go. But Jesus said you go more. Or maybe this or maybe that. Or maybe something else. But I thought of the multitudes that thronged him, 120 believers. Friends, you can't always go on the road. You can't always go the way humanity is walking. You have to define where God wants you to go and what God wants you to do. And so they went. They knew the question. Jesus had already told them what they had to do. And they knew they couldn't do it. So they heard it. They heard it. When Christ came into my life, just an old farm boy and an alcoholic and one that wasn't worth salvaging. And God came into my life and filled me with his spirit. And he called me to preach I knew it. I knew there was no possible at this point that I could be in. But I had to believe to believe if he called me, that he would make me able to. And he always has been able to do what he says to do with them. One day passed to the Two days. You see, sometimes we get the clock watching us about our And sometimes we probably shut his face down before God is able to hear and do the things he wants to do. Three days and it happened four and five. And six and seven. He wonder what this world is God is everything. What are you going to do to it? What's it going to be like? All the time we pray. All the time we just pray. You know what is happening? In And they came in, not a unit at all. Different ideas, different values, different opinions that came in the upper room. But Christ 
Friend, don't ever dare to get in one mind and one accord if you don't want something to happen. You see, I believe that the same thing will happen in the churches today as it happened back then. It didn't happen before until they came in one mind and in one accord with one thought and one thought alone and that was to fulfill what Jesus had in store for them. And the Bible says instantly when they became that way, there came a sound from As a rushing, something supernatural had to enter into the house. And the Bible says it filled all the house wherein they were sitting. And they sat upon each of them cloven tongues like as a fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in another tongue as the Spirit gave them utterance. My Bible tells me that that wasn't the greatest. You see, they were still there, but they didn't stay there. The Bible says, and they came out of the upper room. And as they came out, humanity saw and heard how attention was drawn to these strange talking in the church of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's unspeakable. The Comforter has come. Now, he is not limited to just dwelling among us. He's made it possible to dwell in us. And this he does. We have this treasure in earth and I can admire the Apostle Paul a little bit more when he begins to pay, compare argument to the unspeakable gift that God gave to us. The emphasis of that whole chapter of the thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. I could stay here the rest of the night and talk about Him, and I could never exhaust who He is and what He is in the value He has. Oh,